0: Shortly after I finished the interviews for the Sustainable Investing mini-series, Black Lives Matter took center stage in the United States. I asked around and discovered that the subject is uncomfortable for many to discuss, and that while many CIOs are interested in being part of the solution, most are not familiar with the underlying nature of the problem or the actions to take as a result. This mini-series, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness, and Action, is a four-part introduction to the issues at hand. We'll explore what's been going on for a long time and hear what some are doing about it. It's my small part in contributing to fostering the conversation. My guest on today's show is Darren Dodson. The founder of Illumin Capital, a venture fund of funds that seeks to invest in the best impact fund managers and takes them through a process to reduce implicit bias in their business and investing decisions. Our conversation covers Darren's early experience with discrimination, work backing more than a thousand entrepreneurs in post-Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans, board work at impact-focused Calvert Funds, and launch of Illumin. We discuss Illumin's three pillars of academic research investing in the thesis, and training managers across hiring, investing, and board selection, all with the aspiration to become better investors and take advantage of a huge inefficiency in capital allocation. Please enjoy my conversation with Darren Dodson of Illumin Capital in this continuation of our mini series on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Darren, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here. I always love to start with someone's background, and my understanding is for you, we need to go all the way back to kindergarten. And maybe it's everything I ever needed to know I learned in kindergarten, maybe it starts back there for you. <laughs> so why don't you take me back to that one memory you have?
1: So when I was in kindergarten in Washington, D.C., mostly white kindergarten, which I'll leave nameless, I was asked to leave kindergarten. And it spelled for running around the class like a superhero, was what my mom keeps in her framed report card. And my parents took my side as a young Black boy at the time and took me to a, another kindergarten that was more conducive to superheroes. But I would later learn in some of the research that we do within our firm in collaboration with Stanford University from one of the leading folks in the world on implicit bias that black boys are over it spelled by 4x the rate of their white counterparts. And that does two things that end up in almost every industry and every academic program governments across the US spectrum. And what that does is it artificially inflates the idea that students that aren't black boys or white students in class are doing something better when they aren't, and it automatically over disciplines black students for doing the exact same thing. So it's powerful research and that's one of the insights that is true not only within early K through twelve education, which is one of the areas I love to invest into in ed tech and why it's so important to get bias out of the products and services and firms that are developing those critical interventions. And also it's a really important upstream within investment ecosystems as people continue to grow up and be contributors
0: to society. We need to unravel all of that, but I guess I need to start with what kind of superhero were you trying to be?
1: I was probably trying to be Black Panther, (laughs) but I didn't know it. I mean, we had one of the things that we're also working on funding as a firm is companies that build images of Black and women superheroes. And whether we were looking at He-Man or Superman or Batman or, or all of the folks that I was seeking to be like at the time, I think there's a new set of superheroes today that are helping others to see the possibilities in their lives and careers and making a difference in society. So that's been with Luke Cage and and others being launched within the last couple years, that's been really exciting to watch. I think I was pretty much Superman trying to fly around the classroom and to make a difference for students that sometimes were getting some flack from the teacher at the time.
0: So clearly, you know, a formative lesson for you in discrimination and we'll, we'll come back to that. Where did your interest in business first get started?
1: So when I was about 14 years old, I created a bagel sale at my high school in Washington, D.C., and it spanned to multiple other high schools. I also had a wonderful mentor that helped me understand business through running a carpet cleaning company when I was about 14, 15 years old. So by having the opportunities to really be exposed to a 30 or 40 person operation and company and seeing the difference that it made in the lives of people. We had a team that spanned uh, West African, Honduran, Russian, Czech, people from many different countries working together in a synergistic way to clean the largest hotels in the country. And that taught me a lot about sales processes and And leading people at an early age. And I was really excited by the idea of business and then also how business can make a difference in society and people's lives.
0: So how did that roll forward into the beginning of your professional career? One
1: story that I'll share is that in a program I did that taught young people entrepreneurship, it's called Nifty. It reached 270,000 kids around the world through that curriculum. And You know, one of the things that I had the privilege of doing is having a teacher named Walter Benson, who was a a luminary professor at Georgetown University, who was just incredible in terms of teaching all of us in his class who were 15, 16 years old, like his life counted on it. He was in late stages of brain cancer when he was teaching us, and he just really poured into us some amazing tools and lessons. And one of those was, I remember the teacher and he were kind of at the board getting ready to write. And he said, well, what's the most important word in entrepreneurship? And this is when he had been taking some pretty heavy medicine to attack the cancer. And he would show up full 100% every day. And he drew a big F on the board as a chill kind of moved through the class and then he drew a couple letters away a c on the board and then he turned to us and he said it's got a u and it turned out that the word was focus he said focus and i think that that's always been a word that has stuck with me since walter benson shared it with us in the class at that time that has guided my entrepreneurial mindset. And when I ended up going to Duke, spent some time working with the student government to try to build sustainability models and, and things of that sort through business endeavors. And then immediately after leaving, found ways to help unlock the dream of not only home ownership but business innovation within marginalized entrepreneurs at the Self-Help Credit Union and the Center for Responsible Lending the barriers to creating businesses are enormous. And I thought businesses are one of the ways people can break the cycle of poverty. So is home ownership. And there's a big tie between the two. So if you can create a home or buy a home, you can leverage that home to create a business. And in my first job at the Center for Responsible Lending, what I saw was a systematic extraction of wealth from home ownership in the number one way in which people reached the middle class as a result of predatory loans essentially and these loans would overcharge people because they were black or Hispanics which was basically a specific hit on the american dream that was powerful to have opportunity to work with 60 attorneys on trying to developed statewide frameworks of which we passed a number of them in 2002 to 2005 to stop that to the tune of $9.1 billion a year in savings for those that were overcharged in that process of buying the biggest purchase of their lives.
0: So then I understand you then dove into helping out after Hurricane Katrina.
1: That's right. After doing anti-predatory lending work for three years in policy, I ended up going to Stanford Business School, where I worked on trying to understand how to create businesses that would not destroy the net worth of low-income homeowners and focus on unlocking this hidden potential within the economy and helping people to see things like the lifetime value of a customer across race and not inhibited by the race of the customer. And The day I started Stanford Business School, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, and myself and many of my classmates got together and wanted to do something about that. And that began a two-year process of 70 of us going to New Orleans and working with early stage entrepreneurs. And then I eventually moved there for three years and hosted a program as a part of a a small nonprofit in New Orleans that's called the Idea Village. And we had about 900 entrepreneurs that we worked with and brought in 1,000 leaders from around the world to help and deliver expertise and advice to fight back against the storm, get people back on their feet, rebuild their businesses and the tax infrastructure of the city.
0: That sounds like a huge number of entrepreneurs. What was the range of activities of entrepreneurship that you helped underwrite?
1: So the entrepreneurs varied widely from butchers and Slim Goodies, one of the diners in New Orleans, Dookie Chase, Leah Chase, who created and was known as the grandmother of Creole cooking, was a part of that portfolio, essentially a cultural ambassador. And one of the reasons why helping entrepreneurs in that portfolio were so critically important at that time is I can remember like it was yesterday, Leah Chase was interviewed in the time where the government at all levels, the city level, the state level, and the federal level were trying to decide whether to rebuild New Orleans or not. I've seen throughout my career is that if entrepreneurs are able to have agency in society, they end up fighting to build a better life and wealth for their family, but fighting against systems that might hurt lots of people. And one of the systems was the shutting down of the city, which was shut, as many of us will recall, for six months. And there are questions about whether rebuilding would happen. And Leah Chase, I believe she was 90 years old at the time she made this statement, said, they said, are you going to leave New Orleans? And she said, no, I'm going to die on the battlefield. (laughs) And then another people started to rebuild and come back home because they knew That in the chaos and uncertainty that entrepreneurs are quite familiar with, someone made a decision and a leadership decision that the city would be rebuilt. And it came from the entrepreneurial community. So I think that that's just one of the many stories of people who kind of stood up at a time where there was incredible chaos and moved an entire city forward through entrepreneurial leadership.
0: It's amazing. How did you decide to go from that type of impact driven micro entrepreneurial activity to the asset management industry and practicing this?
1: Well, one of the profound things that happened when we were organizing at Stanford to bring down students and eventually that led to me to move to New Orleans was I wrote a number of letters while I was at Stanford to alums. And seeking support for the student teams in the city of New Orleans. And one of those letters was to Jim Coulter, the founder of TPG and his family. And they had a powerful connection in New Orleans, but wanted, as a trustee of Stanford, Jim as well, wanted to support something that was using entrepreneurship and innovation to rebuild the city. And I think part of what happened each year is that we ended up creating on the platform of the Idea Village, an entire challenge to identify the best entrepreneurs in New Orleans, to build the culture of entrepreneurship, revitalize really the culture of entrepreneurship, because it's always been there in New Orleans, one of the cities that contributed jazz and lots of different spices and foods. And so the innovation has always been present there, but really to catalyze and take that to the next level by identifying funding leading entrepreneurs. So that was to your question, how did I begin to think about the micro scale to the macro scale of venture capital? I do still see incredible connections between them, but Jim would present and share the TPG journey that he had in his early entrepreneurial days and building the portfolio north of $90 billion in revenue from the various different portfolio holdings within TPG, and the difference that made in the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And part of what I reflected on in having an opportunity to see, I think, one of the great strategists and leaders within private equity, and indeed partner with him to rebuild an American city with the people of that city is that private equity, venture capital, and growth, they can be incredible tools to influence the lives of people and create great organizations that redefine our experience and humanity. And there's a sense that the companies that are changing at more and more rapid rates that are in the Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 are challenged on the basis that they could have a greater influence if they had embodied in them the massive opportunity that's present in the growing populations of people of color in the United States, not only as a market, but also as contributors at the leadership level. And in fact, they see it as, as quite strange that asset management is 1.3% of $69 trillion in capital that are managed by one of the largest demographics of folks on the planet, being women and people of color. And yet for 30 years of attempts and tries to develop entrepreneurial talent and the talent of fund managers of color, the system has effectively failed to reach where we think optimality lies. So seeing the opportunity of private equity to transform systems like venture capital and growth funds and private markets led me to go to Calvert Funds, where I ran a portfolio of 44 funds as a consultant to the board of directors there and try my hand at this craft that I'd learned from a wonderful person that I worked with and Jim Coulter and in a very different way. It's Calvert's mission was to tirelessly look for the best and most transformative companies in the world and funds in the world that were dedicated to impact investing. So that was the whole focus of it. It had done great in the money market field in terms of growing from zero to 15 billion and building some of the highest yield money market funds in history over that run from the early 80s to where it currently sits. But the private equity part was something really, really special that we could enable our shareholders at Calvert to participate in being a part of the most transformative impact companies in the world. And that was a powerful way to look at systemic change by redefining and really finding entrepreneurs and fund managers that redefine finance in a way that was inclusive of impact in the world. And we would do that by investing in themes that were similar to and connected to environmental transformation, financial inclusion. We'd look deeply at ed tech. And then finally, we would look at health tech as a transformative field. Of course, food systems and agritech is another field in which we spent a lot of time. And when we found these entrepreneurs, we found that they could compete and achieve market rate returns while making an incredible difference in the world.
0: What did you find satisfying and lacking in an institutional organization like Calvert that may have led you to strike out on your own with Illumin?
1: Well, Calvert was a powerful place to be in that the portfolio that we built was over 26 years. And the founder of Calvert, Wayne Silby, was a wonderful mentor. I think that more than it being about Calvert, part of what I found is that when I was talking at a a conference in Africa or in Asia, the UK, whether I was in Mexico, Brazil, I was seeing largely white audiences in the investment rooms that I would present to on impact investing. And here was a field that over 30 years had developed And if you ask people within the field of impact investing why they were doing what they were doing, they were doing it to solve a lot of investing to achieve market rate returns, the ones that I'm sort of closest to. And of course it was shareholder dollars invested into this. So I thought about that a lot as we deployed investments, but also to make the difference in the big problems of the world. The irony was that as we sought to do that, many of the metrics that the field was created around did not include advancing women and people of color as a strategy for outperformance with an impact investing. And part of what we found as our team deployed the capital at Calvert is we found super high outperformers that were both women and people of color led funds. And I guess it was in reflection on that body of work with some support and coaching from Calvert, including Wayne Silby, to launch a fund that was entirely focused on impact investing in the strategic inclusion of women and people of color as a strategy for outperformance, which is how Illumin Capital was founded. And we have three different components to the firm. One is rigorous and evidence-based research and we recently published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences with two Stanford professors who have PhDs, respectively, one, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, and implicit bias social psychology from Harvard, and the other, Dr. Ashby Monk, who has a PhD in sovereign wealth fund and pension fund, portfolio construction, and risk-taking and outperformance. And so when we combine these two incredible professors with our team at Illumin Capital, we executed and wrote a pioneering paper between two fields that hadn't really ever been combined. So when we looked at Daniel Kahneman's research and thinking fast and slow, the behavioral economic frameworks that showed when you reduce bias, you can increase returns over a thousand company studies with McKinsey, what we didn't see within that work was the application to how investors overlook women and people of color. We knew that if we could demonstrate that, and if we could figure out if there were economics left on the table, then we would have a powerful thesis to begin a firm. And that's what happened. So we secretly tested 180 asset allocators managing over a trillion dollars in capital. In almost every situation that an asset allocator looked at, a high-performing black-led fund and a high-performing white-led fund, when they looked at these two cases, we rotated only the race of the leader of the fund. And the asset allocators, it was as if they made up stories when they saw the race of the leader of the fund and artificially discounted their ability to execute on strategy, artificially discounted their ability to raise capital and made up these collections of different stories that led and would likely lead to the undercapitalization based on the exact same track record of performance and all other credentials of the managing director of the funds. So what that means for us as a firm at Illumin Capital is that there's a whole world of people out there that are outperforming and consistently getting dinged for no other reason than a race. And if we can go out and find those people that are managers, which is we're a fund of funds, so that's what we do. And what we also hold is true is that Many fund managers that are looking for companies likely also make that same discounting within the process of their selection, which helps us understand why Black-led companies are so underrepresented, even despite performance. So we set out to invest in the leading impact fund managers, to work with them to reduce their implicit biases, to unlock their vision and ability to see over the 10-year period of our deployment of our curriculum so that they can select the best companies in the world. And we help our investors kind of see the humanity and overlook value of fund managers within their entire portfolios and strategies. Because indeed, although this is pronounced within the private equity, venture capital and growth investing fields, we believe it has implications within many different fields of investing.
0: I just want to make sure we frame it out. You said that the firm was really founded on these three pillars. The first is research. I have a feeling the second and third were embedded in what you said, but I just want to make sure it was clear about understanding what those three pillars are.
1: The first pillar is evidence-based research and collaboration with Stanford. The second is investing on the thesis that we have as a fund of funds, investing in the leading impact managers in the world and working with them to reduce their biases so they can select the best companies, hire the best people, and also select the best board members for the boards they own and control. The third pillar is an impact experience. So what we do is we bring together our investors to have deep dives with our fund managers in tying together some of the historical pieces of why the asset management business is so imbalanced in the first place. For example, when we look at the through line between slavery, the periods of racial terror in our country, lynching, mass incarceration, all of those different time periods have fingerprints on the current imbalance in the asset management business today. So when we think about the burning down of the 100th anniversary of the building down of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, that was something that comes up a lot in civil rights history But it often doesn't come up in economic history. We look at the powerful work of Robert Schiller as he won the Nobel Prize in Narrative Economics. When we think about these narratives that led to the destruction of value in the housing market that I talked about and the systematic extraction of the value of people in their biggest purchase in their lives because they're Black or Latino being overcharged in that process then we begin to see how the intervention points to change these systems and optimize our investment portfolios, achieve outperformance by not discounting Black or Latino homeowners in that particular case. So those are the three aspects of the firm. Again, the research, the investing upon the thesis and sharing those insights with our investors. And then finally, the impact experience, the deep dive three-day process where there's a cornerstone for like, Think of it like the dojo of bias reduction of applying these skills because they can't just be taught, they have to be shown. And again, this is developing a practice of reducing bias within our investment hiring and board selection practices.
0: As you walk through the, let's call it the beginning of the investment process, where you're looking for managers and you have this research in your hands I'm curious how you disaggregate, let's just call it impact investing, if the thought of impact investing means they're investing in in such a way to do good, black owned and women owned, which may have different streams and cross sect, but you may not have all three at the same time.
1: So the basic macro thesis, and I can get to the micro conversation, is that If 1.3% of $69 trillion is invested in Black and women-owned firms and led firms, then suddenly there's a massive opportunity. One way that we think about capturing that opportunity within our process is when we state publicly that we're open and seeking Black-led, women-led, Latinx-led, Indigenous-led, private equity, venture capital and growth led funds. Because if we don't say that affirmatively, then people will think that we're like everyone else that got the result that we have currently, (laughs) which is so little money relative to what we'd expect by random chance is deployed within fund leaders that look like so much of the population of the world and the United States. So if we take that something artificially but real is pushing back that number to keep it where it is, what we're doing in our process is fighting against that current that leaves a ton of money on the table as it's reviewing high-performing women and people of color-led funds. So as we go on that journey, stating it publicly is really incredibly important being relentless in building networks that lead to identifying the best fund managers, which is something that we put a lot of resources into. And also after being at Calvert for eight years and looking at an incredibly talented group of people that are not making a choice between doing good and Making a return in the world, it turns out that the talent is skewing towards wanting to participate in this sector and build solutions to the problems that they're seeing. And of course, the problems come with massive markets. So, the uncompromising nature of the most talented leaders in the world to continue to build at the forefront of creating impact and returns. I think that's been some of the reason why some of the largest private equity funds in the world are launching almost on a daily basis, it fields impact funds, because they're finding that if they don't, they'll lose out on some of the best talent in the world that is uncompromising in their focus on achieving outsized returns. Now, within that analysis, because impact investing was also unfortunately, has some of the biases of the broader financial system that lead to lower percentages of women and people of color being invested in. I see that as one of the tremendous opportunities and potentially largest drags on the ability of impact investing to kind of prove out itself as a a market-driven approach. So it's one of the great insights, I think, from our work and the work of many others within the field around looking at the latent value in the economy caused by the diminishing of someone's humanity, which is what happens when you outperform and get consistently overlooked by asset allocators for no reason other than race, provides on the flip side a tremendous impact in the world, the rebuilding of optimal financial decision-making process creating returns for investors and and positive impacts in the world. I guess it's part of the beauty of having a mentor like Wayne. Wayne is a systems engineer and created Calvert at a time where no one believed in impact investing. <laughs> and, and even though it could be and grew to a $15 billion footprint over time, I think there was not deep interest until the asset class began to perform and people found that they'd vote with their values and their investments. And if they had an opportunity to do the same without trading off returns, that they would take that decision forward. And my thesis is if they can invest in people that are likely to be the best people in the world to run funds and companies that have been historically overlooked to no fault of their own, because of the biases in our investment processes, then that kind of unlocks a tremendous amount.
0: I know when you go from the macro and then moving down towards the micro, one of the people that introduced us, Joel Wittenberg at Kellogg, they focus more on racial difference because, and one of the reasons he says is, when you start talking about women, it ends up only being white women. And so I'm curious as these cross-sect and you go through your process, Let's say you have a, a big pool. Does it matter to you if it's a black man or a white woman? And when does the race and the gender differences cross Yeah,
1: it's an interesting question. When I say women, and I'm familiar with the way the world views it, I mean Afro-Latino women, black women-led funds, of which we've invested in both black and Afro-Latina-led funds that are are female-led. So I think if at the macro level, what we're seeing is that the likelihood of half of that $69 trillion rather than 1% of it should be the normalized number, then we've got a long way to go in looking at women of color, for example, as investment areas of focus. But what we also realize is that implicit bias affects all people, not just white men, not just white women, but black women and black men too. When we look at the research, what we see is that it happens to be mostly white men currently in the asset management business that have power and control, which is one of the reasons why at Illumin Capital, our investments look like the optimal portfolio of the world. It includes women and people of color within our portfolio and structure, which to me and us at the Capital means black women and Afro-Latino women and other women of color led organization and funds, but also includes white male led funds. Because we realize that reducing the bias that all of us has is the challenge that we're setting out to solve for such that we can achieve higher returns And if you think about it from a systems basis, if you develop a model that is only investing in women and people of color, one of the challenges with that is that white men control 98.7% of the asset management business. So it sort of doesn't create the systematic change that's necessary, but by building a cohort of fund managers that look like the optimal portfolio of the world, we would argue that that is, to achieve the highest returns that would include aspects of all the different groups that we've mentioned, so that they can work on reducing bias together and educating our investors that manage over a trillion dollars in capital on how to compete with that information. That's our model, because what we're after is reducing the bias that Daniel Kahneman and others. Failure have proven prevents optimal returns.
0: How do you think about investing in let's call it minority-led funds as compared to investing in existing funds that have outstanding minority recruitment and promotion practices, but may be majority-led?
1: If we look at the amount of species of birds in the sky, we see a lot of diversity. When we look at a garden and we look at the biodiversity we see a resilient ecosystem a prosperous ecosystem has a lot of biodiversity in yellowstone recently reintroduced wolves and suddenly all the flowers came back and things that were out of balance for many years because the rabbit population overgrew resulted in a rebalancing of the ecosystem And part of what I see is that the question really is what makes the current system optimal that should be answered rather than what makes Darren's philosophy or investment analysis on a manager of color. And I'm careful to not name them minority fund managers, mostly because they're the majority of what we would expect in the world by population. And also, when we look within the complexity of different populations of people of color as it maps to the talent that we'd expect to see within the asset management business, there's a big opportunity, just like there would be in many other areas that are sort of under-investigated, misunderstood. I remember when Andy Ryclef, my venture capital professor at Stanford Business School, said, there are two conditions that need to exist for a major win in in venture capital. The first is that the entrepreneur is non-consensus. In other words, if you went around to most of the people in the world, they'd say, well, I'm not sure if that's gonna work. And the second is that they're right. So when we look at that framework, I could be wrong that there's not a massive opportunity and many of the most talented people in the world, but I think our Stanford paper helps to buttress the idea that that's likely true, that a black entrepreneur that's high-performing, that's right in front of someone's face, that's allocating assets, would artificially discount them only because they're black, right? So that's part of the reason why we focus on fund leaders of color. And that's part of the reason why we help our white-led funds understand that that's something that we don't indict them for, but we need to get fixed in order to get and select the best investments in the world. And there that's the financial analysis, but I don't want to leave the human analysis out in the cold because it is messed up to outperform and get overlooked only because of your race. It damages the humanity of the person selecting the fund and that of the person that's being overlooked. Those of us that love optimization and modern portfolio theory and investment analysis are appalled to hear that too, because why would we sign up for a fiduciary duty when we'd be violating it systematically without learning some of these important elements of reducing the biases that we have within our selection process and our ability to achieve the highest returns for our investors. So it feels like a perfect storm of sorts of opportunities for those that can figure this out.
0: One of the things you mentioned earlier was a 10-year training process. And I'm curious, what's different in thinking about the changes that need to happen over a 10-year period compared to a probably a two or three-year period that most in the industry think?
1: Well, many of the challenges that we're working on were cemented over 400 years. So I kind of think 10 years is a short time frame for innovation, given how difficult the systematic embedded processes and wiring in our brains are. Kahneman's research inside of behavioral economics cites that people in their own fields of speciality will be subject to biases by the changing of just very small framings of questions and processes. So in this training and process, I think in some martial arts practices, like uh, achieving a black belt, you don't know exactly when you're going to be there. But for those of my friends that are martial artists, usually what happens is when the white belt and early age five, six year olds come marching in, their first question is, when do I get my black belt? And then one of my friend's dads used to, who was a black belt, and one of those that brought karate to the United States, he would take off his black belt and give it to the five-year-old. And they say, no, 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 I want to earn it. (laughs) And in this process of behavioral change, the process of developing situational analysis, what we see within the research of implicit bias and bias in general is that it's situational. So what you're training to see is the situations where it's most likely to occur. And then once you identify those situations, then you have your intervention set to focus on those specific situations, much like martial arts. So when you're training for a situation where there may be three opponents or one opponent, or they come with a a frontal attack or a body attack. So you have a different toolkit for each of those different scenarios. So we have defined the different situations, build the interventions for those situations and help them to train over the 10 year period to become better investors, and it might not be as important to spend a good chunk of time year over year studying and getting better at this, but because there's a $35 trillion opportunity on the other side of getting this stuff right, we believe that it is, like those we've partnered with, an essential process to, one, yeah, make our world a better place, but two, to certainly compete out these returns that are hidden behind literally the race of people and the gender of people within the economic system.
0: What's a common example of one of the situations that you see come up that people can become more aware of and correct?
1: I'll give this one for those that are excited about becoming allies and have been allies to women and people of color within their organizations. One of the common mistakes that people make in mentoring women and people of color oftentimes is that in their organization will, during a performance review, go easier or not. They're like, oh, this person's really experienced a lot of pain in their life. They're constantly overlooked and underestimated. And now I don't need to pile on by giving a lot of critical feedback in a review. Well, the opposite is true based on research that those that don't get the feedback that they need in order to punch through the next promotion or place in their career will ultimately not be as successful as those that do. So that's just a common misunderstanding. It can be true in an entrepreneurial investment process. It can be true in a hiring promotion process. And it can also be true in sharing feedback to somebody that's uh, interviewing for a board position. So those are things that we have to be cognizant, aware of situationally, that our brain shortcuts to make us think we're doing something positive to help the world. And actually, we're reinforcing a system that underestimates people and doesn't prepare them for success. That's just one nugget within an entire 40-module journey of a training.
0: What's one more nugget? Because that's so interesting. Got to ask for another one.
1: One of the interesting things about this work is that awareness is really important. And it may seem obvious from the thinking fast and slow work from Kahneman that he's basically saying, figure out the times when you need to slow down and shift from your system one automatic brain processing to your analytical system to brain processing, where you can catch some of the likely stories that system one is telling. And what I like to think about is Illumin Capital and our managers and our investors are holding a mirror to the financial system. And that mirror is asking folks to be accountable to the optimization and fiduciary duty that they've signed up for, and realize that without bias reduction, that is not being met. And there needs to be a big investment in innovation and getting these tools right. So I think more so than me sharing a tip or two, the integrated process of reducing bias and the commitment to multiple years, ultimately the question is, what's it worth to do that work And what's the magnitude of investment that we should see to solve a $35 trillion problem? And it's much more than it's currently going in to the system. The fact that our investors are some of the first in the world to fund and conduct and pioneer research at the intersection of behavioral science and the overlooking due to implicit bias around race is, I think there's a very good reasons why that should have been done before. But I was shocked to find that there wasn't more research within the field relative to the size of the market that could be addressed if the research was done. By definition, bias is unseen. So as we begin to reveal it, it becomes more seen, but it's a very hard thing for the brain to get its head around, which is why it takes a longer period of time to begin to create change and help people see things that are unseen.
0: As you're doing this in the beginning of this process in investment management, I know that you've also been involved on the board of Ben & Jerry's, and I'm curious what your experience has been on that board.
1: Yes. For eight years, I've served on the board of Ben & Jerry's, which about 2000 was sold to Unilever. And in the sale, there were 92 legally binding provisions in the sales agreement including one that created a a board of directors in perpetuity to govern the social economic and quality missions of the company. We do test the ice cream at every board meeting before it goes out the door to a few extra pounds, uh, you know, over those eight years as a result of that important process. And we look carefully with the management team at every ingredient. My job, along with other board members, is the, the chair of the Audit committee is to measure the social impact in 35 countries around the world in which we do business and to really think about the power of a company and a set of fans that are quite loyal to that company around the world and how to support incredible activists and communities around the world to enable them to push forward the positive impact in our world. And those are in ways that we call, as a a Ben and Jerry's community, a link prosperity. So we think about as we build our business and resilience in our supply chain, and as we look at the ways in which we engage people around the issues of criminal justice, the people around the issues of lower pay of women of color, women in general, and raise awareness among our customer set. And then there are franchisees that operate in more than 400 communities around the world that are really listening and sort of taking on these different challenges. So it's an amazing company. We have a lot of work to do externally and internally to live up to the message that we've set and continue to be on our journey of pushing the forefront of what some would call corporate social responsibility, but we're thinking of it as an integrated business model that builds fierce loyalty among a set of people and takes real stances to advance some of these issues for marginalized communities across the country and the world.
0: Well, Darren, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions. Just before we do that, how can people find you to learn more about what you're doing?
1: They can reach out to me through our website, which is www.olumencapital.com. That's really the best way or reach out to me on LinkedIn.
0: All right, Darren, here we go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Fishing.
1: (laughs) I love fishing. I'm usually up in Redding in California on the Sacralow or Sacramento River this time of year as the salmon are coming in from the ocean the Trinity River, another beautiful river out in Truckee on the rivers out there. More recently, I was just out on a boat in the Bay with a a number of people from communities all across the Bay Area, but not too many because we still have our COVID restrictions. And we were chasing down lincod and Atlantic cod. I'm just enthralled by the idea that so few fish can exist in the vast ocean. And Of course, like investing, a lot of it is about finding the fish, (laughs) you know, within fishing. You can spend 90% of your time fishing, looking for the fish, just like investing. You spend a lot of time looking for great entrepreneurs and great fund managers.
0: Yeah. What's your most important daily habit?
1: I meditate 30 minutes a day, and that helps clear the clouds and the waves of particularly over the last couple of months. I've been incredibly tuned in to the idea that so many people in the country right now, and be it themselves or their families, are having challenges around behavioral and mental health challenges. So that's acts as a, an everyday way to counteract an incredibly difficult time in the country and the world. So building in a place to process that and to move that through as part of my meditation practice.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: I think our research study reveals it. If people want to be commercial and they tell themselves that story that they are and they systematically look past people just because they're black or Latino or women, I think that that's a real pet peeve. I mean, I'm upset not only because that they violate their own standard of duty and legal requirements by law, but also that there isn't always a learning mindset to be curious about what the answer might be, that they're in some ways fixed. And investors that don't learn is something that I don't like investing in or have deep conviction about because I think the world is consistently moving, and we have to be tireless learners in order to do what we do really well.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: Well, one of my dad's sayings is that life is about peace of mind and options. And I think there's something really powerful about that, particularly at this moment in history, as we're looking at a society at so many divisive challenges and divisions increasing in terms of wealth. And when we think about how precious it is to have the peace of mind to be able to exist as who we are in society and feel comfortable with that, and we think about the options to be able to live a prosperous life, Those are two different things that are constant reminders of the work that we have to do as a society.
0: Great. All right. Last one before we have a few more for our premium members. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: Leadership can happen from the back of the room, and it doesn't always have to happen from the front of the room. So, coaching the people, the heroes of our story who are fund managers. And entrepreneurs is something that I'm really excited about. And it's not necessarily about Illumin Capital, but about the entire movement that we're a part of achieving.
0: Great. Darren, really appreciate it. Very insightful. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it, Ted. Thanks for the opportunity to share. All right. We're going to keep going with a few more here for our uh, exclusive premium members. All right. What advice do you give early career professionals?
1: I believe that in an early career following your passion is incredibly important and knowing when you're awake in a job or in a business that you're building and that it continues to be meaningful to you is incredibly important. I think having an incredible mentor is really important. And when you think about mentoring relationships... Think about how they're mutually beneficial is something that I wish I probably had learned earlier and found to be just a valuable tidbit on the road, on the journey.
0: What advice do you give your peers today? Like Einstein would say, if you're trying to
1: solve a problem and you have 60 minutes, spend 55 minutes trying to frame the problem. And I think that when you're looking at the things that you care about, and the vulnerabilities in the system that you're trying to solve or create a solution in, it's okay to spend a lot of time and iterate some action, but a lot of time thinking about what that specific problem that you want to solve is, and then spending a lot of energy in your life and your commitment trying to solve that problem. But I think that what I've really appreciated about many great entrepreneurs is how intimately they understand the problems that they're trying to solve and how much work they've put into framing that and understanding it.
0: What's your favorite book?
1: Biased by Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, the lead of our research team. We're thrilled that she highlighted some of our work, but really it is a phenomenal book. If you buy it on Audible, it's her reading it. It's personal, it's Connecting anyone can read it and be moved by the book and have some basic steps to look at creating change within their life and their communities in order to make the world a less biased place and build stronger communities that are inclusive and equitable.
0: All right, Darren, last one, we'll let you go. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it?
1: One of the things that I felt that I would want to do early in my career is use the law to create policy change as a public policy major. And although I still think that's a really worthy place to spend time, one of the things that happened is that although many of the laws that we passed at the Center for Responsible Lending are still on the books, business leaders had incredible influence within political structures and push those laws that sometimes would save low-income families and particularly Black and Latino families billions of dollars so that they could continue to extract value from those communities in ways that had a lot of structural racism in them. So I think that the learning is that intersectionality and solutions, having a really strong policy toolkit, with the influence of business rooted in the understanding and connection to activists and are all really important parts of creating change in society. And that these various different tools are important to use at different times and to deploy, but an understanding of each of them, uh, not separate from the other, but being woven together in a systems orientation are incredibly important to advancing some of the issues that we've been talking about today.
0: Well, Darren, again, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thanks very much, Sad. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.